Good morning, church. Great to see you. Welcome to Union Chapel this morning. Welcome to you joining us online as well. Glad you're here. This is the day the Lord has made. We're rejoicing and glad in it. Trust that you're doing okay today. We've been talking about the Sabbath, and today we want to look at the Psalms for a very powerful Psalm, the 90th Psalm. This is a Psalm of Moses. So we find Moses here in the Psalms, and this is a a very influential psalm in our lives. And of course, we want to, to pick out a particular theme from this psalm today with regard to the Sabbath so that we would have the wisdom of God to number our days. Lord, help us to number our days so that we might have a heart of wisdom. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Psalm 90, please. We're gonna project the words on the screen. Of course, our custom is to stand to hear God's word, so I invite you to do so as you're able Thank you so much. So here's a prayer of Moses, the man of God. Verse 1. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. A thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Yet you sweep People away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass for the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it is dry and withered. We are consumed by your anger and terrified by your indignation. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. We finish our years with a moan. Our days may come to 70 years or 80 if our strength endures, yet the best of them are but trouble and sorrow. For they quickly pass, and we fly away. If only we knew the power of your anger. Your wrath is as great as the fear that is your due. Teach us then to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Relent, Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy, be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you have afflicted us. For as many years as we have seen trouble, may your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. And may God inspire and encourage us today. You may be seated. Thanks so much. Let me take you back to July the 4th, 1999. This is uh, 21, 22 years ago. And... We were having our annual event at the lake. The Paris family gathered. Uh, Beth and I were there with our two boys. My parents were there. My two sisters and their families were also present, 14 of us in total. Caleb was my oldest sister's firstborn, so my nephew. He was the oldest of all the grandkids and very special. He was typically the most handsome winsome, impressive person in whatever room he was in. He was a follower of Jesus. He was wise beyond his years. Uh, He was loved by virtually everyone who ever met him. He was also an exceptional athlete, uh, about 6'2", 190 as a high school senior, uh, heavily muscled, no body fat. Uh, He had already played a key role at age 16. He, He was inserted on an all-star team in the Lafayette area in the Colt Baseball League. And this is a 
baseball for 15 and 16 years old. So when he was 16 years old, he played on a Colt all-star team in Lafayette, Indiana that won the world championship, the, the Colt World Series. He was the leading hitter on the team, played left field, all that. What few athletic records uh, I still held at our high school, Caleb erased. I'm not bitter um, any more than anyone whose records get erased might be. At least we kept it in the family. Um, it was a little awkward for him to not only erase them, but to obliterate them so they would never be remembered ever again. But other than that, I'm fine with it. Uh, the year before our gathering at the lake, he had established a new basketball single-season scoring record in Indiana Wesleyan University. In one of those games, he actually made three, made 11 three-pointers, uh, which is Steph Curry kind of numbers. He was really looking forward to his senior year at IWU and then on to full-time farming with the family. This was July 4th. Just like all the others before, we fished early in the day. We played on the water, skiing, tubing, lots of water, lots of food, lots of family fun. And the end of the day ended as it always did with a trip down to the basketball court for our three-on-three game. Now, this was a, a tradition which we have maintained all these years. It has gone on for decades now. And it's more than just a pickup game with the family. This is not a game for giggles. This is a game for bragging rights. The teams were divided up and are always divided up each year uh, with the most balance that we can, we can imagine. And the winning team, best of seven, winning team always has bragging rights at Thanksgiving and then again at Christmas and any other time we were gathered because uh, we were very serious about, you know, by the way, just in case you were wondering, some of you uh, participation trophy parents there's a reason why they put a scoreboard in all of these buildings. Because we want to know who wins, not just who played. I'm sorry, last service of the day, I'm starting, to, my filters are down. I have, to, I have to compose myself much better. Last year we had the pickup game, and in order to fill out the team, our granddaughter Kayla who's the oldest of our grandchildren. She was 14. She's 15 now. She's got her driver's permit. And she is the firstborn of our firstborn, which means she has an attitude. And all last July 4th, as we were anticipating the afternoon pickup game, that she started trash-talking me. She'd walk by, you know, with some food at lunch, and she said, Papa, I don't even know why you're bothering to go down to the courts. You're not going to be able to do anything. It was already decided what the teams would be and that she knew that she and I would be competing, so I would be guarding her and she'd be guarding me. 45 minutes later, she walked by and she'd say, listen, don't worry, I'm going to take it easy on you since you're so old. <laughs> you know, it was that, like that. Okay. Well, the, 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 the series went to game seven this past year and in the, in, the, in the seventh game, I went five for five, and, and my team won. And that finally shut her up. <laughs> At least until this summer on the fourth. I'm not sure when they'll stop letting me play. My dad played in our game for years until he was about my age. And that's when we said, Papa, you can't play anymore. You know, it's not safe. Because we're, we're not messing around. This is serious. And... 
<laughs> and these are, big, these are big humans in our family. And so it's a serious game. Uh, of course, now they're starting to say, Papa, are you sure you want to play this year? I mean, we don't want you falling and breaking a hip. And we'll have to take you to the hospital and get you a walker. Stuff like that. It's hilarious. It's really funny. Well, in 1999, the end of the day ended just as it always did with a trip down to the courts. Our sons, Aaron and Isaac, and Caleb's brother, Zach, would take on our nephew, Mitch, and Caleb and me. Now, I was 44 at the time. I still had a little game left. (laughs) It went to a game seven, and of course, Caleb hit the winning basket from about 27 feet. And then as the day ended and folks were packing up to leave, Caleb actually said, Beth and I reminisced about this yesterday, he actually said out loud, anybody want to trade places with me? Because tomorrow I have to clean out the grain bins, which was a dirty job. And we all said, no thanks. Now, if we had known that Caleb was going to heaven the next day, I know my parents would have traded with him. I know his parents would have traded with him. And maybe some of us as well. That next day, his dad and Caleb went to the farm. And there they were going to clean these two metal grain bins. They each took a bin and started the work. The auger motor on Caleb's bin had shorted out, electrifying the bin. So when Caleb grabbed the top of the door to step in, he was electrocuted and killed. Three days later, we conducted Caleb's funeral. Uh, Here's a picture of Caleb. Caleb's the one on the left. That's his brother, Zach. This was uh, a wedding event just before he passed away. I've preached many difficult funerals in my day, uh, none more difficult. The visitation uh, for the viewing was held at their local church, and my sister and our family greeted people for nine hours that day. We held as a memorial service in the local high school gym the next day. It was middle of the day, middle of the week, and 1,500 people attended his funeral. Caleb died at the age of 22. He had less than three score and 10 that Psalm 90 promises to us, allots to us. My sister and brother-in-law, Caleb's parents, if they live to be 80, will think about him every single day. And although the pain has lessened over time, it never goes away. They will grow old. We have all grown old. But Caleb, of course, will be young forever, forever young. Now, this sermon series is on the Sabbath, and the Sabbath and the fourth commandment are about time. I want you to get this. The Judeo-Christian worldview is intimately concerned with time, linear time. There are some religious and philosophical worldviews that believe that the clock of the universe is forever resetting itself. So their philosophy is that, that it continues to cycle. Time repeats itself. And that one life is experienced with another life and another after that until you try to get it right. And so there's this continuous cycle of time. But we believe in the Judeo-Christian philosophy that there was a beginning and we believe that there will be an end. It's very important. Time is noted. 
Time is kept and time is valuable. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Amen. So Psalm 90 is a wonderful lesson about time. And for most of us, the most memorable phrase in Psalm 90 is verse 12. And it says, teach us to realize the brevity of life so that we may grow in wisdom or teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Now, we all know that foolish people are the ones who act like the ride never stops, that it's just going to go on and that we're not really ever going to die. We're just going to keep living on. They think they're going to get out of this life alive. But this psalm opens up with a great reminder that God is in the business for eternity, from everlasting to everlasting. You are God. So before there was time, and in the eons of the future experience of life, God's still going to be in business, still going to be in business. And, And so he has always been and always will be And if we want to know him better, then we had better develop a perspective that sees beyond our short horizon, just this brief time that we are alive on the earth. We serve a God with more than a five-year plan. So this psalm asks God to renew our joy, renew our faith each morning. It does not ask God to banish all of our pain or suffering. Instead, it seeks a balance. It gives us gladness, if you will, in proportion to the hard times. It says there are seasons in life. There are rhythms to be lived. It doesn't offer some imitation sweetener to somehow lessen our our pain when things get hard. Psalm 90 asks us to see the Lord's hand at work through every day, every month, every year of our lives. Lord, teach us to number our days. Teach us to number So I have two points this morning. This is a relatively brief sermon. Two points. Here's the first one. If you've got your phones out, you'll see it on the outline. Teach us to number our days. The first and most obvious lesson to be drawn is the relative brevity of life. Life is short. It goes fast. The psalmist in Psalm 90 says we're just like the grass that springs up in the morning by evening. It's all dried up and withers. Just goes like that. So we know it is possible that God gave us the fourth commandment so that we would grapple, if you will, with the number of our days and make appropriate preparations. We ought to be ready. We ought to be prepared for the brevity of life. You know, what happens when we die? That's a good question. That's actually relevant to everyone. What happens to us when we die? Where are we going? What has God done to help us prepare to get ready? for that occasion, which is coming to all of us. Let me remind you of the three R's of the Sabbath. Put it on the screen for you. Here are the three R's. Rest, renewal, and reverence. Rest, renewal, and reverence. We rest from the tyranny of the urgent. We talked about this last week. We we rest from the staggering precipice of eternity, which weighs on people. We rest from the mundane work of the daily routines of our lives. But in the context of the renewal that comes when we pause to rest and take a Sabbath, and, and change our rhythm, it brings renewal. And part of the renewal is that we can get a glimpse of God. We can get a glimpse of the divine. This is so important, so powerful. And our response to the divine is reverence. Lord, I see you. I hear you. I understand you. I worship you. 
So rest, renewal, and reverence, all of those things take time. Now, there's a common phrase in our culture today, and it goes like this, time is money. Time is money. We all are familiar with that phrase. And if that's true, time is money, then the question needs to be asked, well, what is the cost then, the, the numerical cost, the bottom line cost to practicing the Sabbath? If I'm going to take one day in seven off, practice the Sabbath, what's that going to cost me? Over time to the bottom line. It's a great question. There's an interesting book that's been written by Dan Butner. His, his uh, book is called The Blue Zones. Blue Zones. The color blue. Zones. This was his premise. I wonder if there are peoples in the world, maybe segregated, congregated in groups around the world that live longer than everybody else. That was the premise of the study. And guess what? He found such groups here and there around the planet. It's fascinating. And he discovered common patterns in these groups of people and because these blue zones actually have human beings that live on average between 10 and 12 years longer than the average lifespan of everybody else, everywhere else. And of course, if, uh, the, the kinds of things that he discovered about their lifestyle are things that we would predict, like they didn't smoke or eat a diet high in animal fat. They didn't, uh, they didn't lay around, but they walked a lot. They kept moving. They valued family and relationships. In the United States, he found one of these blue zones. It's in Loma Linda, California, among the Seventh-day Adventists. How curious is that? I just think this is really interesting. Now, we know the Seventh-day Adventists, they practice a little different weekly rhythm. They're called Seventh-day Adventists because they actually worship God. They come together in their churches on Saturday, and on Sunday, they practice the Sabbath. Seventh-day Adventists. Pretty interesting. And so on average, the cohort in Loma Linda lives about a dozen years longer than the rest of America. And if and now watch the, watch the numbers. So we ask them the question, how much does it cost to practice the Sabbath? For folks in Loma Linda, watch this. If you multiply the number of Sabbaths they observe per year by the average lifespan and then divide the figure by 365, so number of Sabbaths per year times their average lifespan divided by 365, you get right at 12 years. So in other words, the number of extra years they live is roughly equivalent to the number of days they spend in Sabbath keeping. So the, the number of days that they, that they in, invest in Sabbath keeping, they actually get back to the day on the back end of their lifespan. So the question is, what does it cost to practice the Sabbath? Zero. Costs nothing. Except you get to live longer and more healthy and more happy. Other than that, Sabbath's not worth much. Do we have to go on? Really, for all of you linear thinkers, you know, you, you scientific-minded people, just tell me the science. There's the science. Now, what are you going to do? Doesn't cost anything. That's great. So teach us to number our days. As my nephew Caleb's story illustrates, life is unpredictable. As it turns out, the world is inherently unsafe. It's unsafe. Something's going to get us. Every last one of us. 
Nobody gets out alive. You know, Pastor Jeff mentioned that Beth and I have been pastoring here for 40 years. Every time someone says that, all the energy drains out of my body. I don't know what that is. You may think that's how encouraging for Greg and Beth. Actually, I just, it makes me just lose, you know, I want to sit down. <laughs> but I did calculate approximately how many sermons I've preached at Union Chapel over the years, and it's about 2,500. That's probably conservative. 2,500, and I know that many times over the years, I've actually paused in a sermon like this and, and asked the question, what if this is the last sermon you ever hear preached? Would that matter? If you knew this was the last sermon you would ever hear, would it change the way you're listening to it? Would it change your attitude about it? Would it change your response to it? Would it matter? What if this is the last sermon I ever preach? Could be. Because you don't know, and I don't know. There's no way to know. We just know we're not, we're, none of us are getting out alive. And so the question isn't, how long am I going to live? The question is, am I prepared for the occasion of my death? Which is certain. As it turns out, with our, with our nephew Caleb, look, what would we have done? What links would we have gone to to protect him? But as it turns out, you can't protect, ultimately, yourself or the people you love. You can try, and this is what responsible people do, and we try to put up the guardrails, and as parents, you know, you're raising children, and you do the best you can, and, 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 you, and you try to... You try to take as much care as possible, but as it turns out, you can't protect them. You can't do it, no matter how hard you try. Everyone's vulnerable. So the only thing that we can do is prepare. I preached a sermon years ago. A 19-year-old boy got drunk, driving home in his car, wrecked his car, and killed himself. So now they call me, come and make sense of this, Pastor Greg. It's awkward. It's hard. You have these parents, these siblings, these grandparents, extended family and friends, everybody inconsolable. Make sense of this. Well, ultimately, all you have is the trustworthiness of God, which is great. As much as you love this kid, God loves him even more. You can trust him to his care. Be comforted in that. And by the way, all of us are going to die, and you can't protect ourselves from it, but we can be prepared by managing our souls and the spiritual condition of our life. That's what we have. So Lord, teach us to number our days. We live in this, uh, we live in this mechanized environment right now, and let me just remind you, I've been talking about this all month. The second hand on our watch goes around once per minute. 60 seconds, takes a minute to get around. In the same 60 seconds, our text messages are traveling at the speed of light, and our text messages travel at 11.2 million miles per hour. We, we, with modern communication technology, we have passed the jet age like it was standing still. I mean, you understand people in Central Asia right now can be watching this worship service live. 
It's a, it's a fascinating world, amazing world. Humanity has actually waded into the shoreline between what's real and what's virtual. And it's hard to tell the difference between what's solid and what's fluid, what's real and what's make-believe, what's three-dimensional and what's four-dimensional. That'll make your mind expand. Start thinking about the fourth dimension or the fifth dimension or the sixth dimension. (laughs) Gamers, we know, can advance all the way to level 12 in a mercenary raid on a terrorist base until getting blown up by a stray rocket blast. All he has to do, though, is hit replay, and he's back in the game. But the virtual world is no longer abstract. It affects us. It, it, it impacts our lives every day. There are soldiers sitting in, in military facilities right now in different parts of the world, United States military personnel, and they're sipping on a cup of coffee right now, sipping on a cup of coffee, and she is looking at a screen, a computer screen in front of her, and she is watching what the robotic eye of a, of a, of a manless drone, which is flying 15,000 feet in the air, is, is observing in a Middle Eastern village. And she's sipping coffee. And with just the slip of a hand, she pushes the wrong button, and suddenly a missile is fired from that drone and takes out an unsuspecting village somewhere. So virtual gets real, real fast in that kind of setting. So we say, who's in the crosshairs? I wonder if they're paying attention. I wonder if the drone's flying over us right now. I wonder what it means. I wonder what, the, what is the address bar? Is, is a thread attached? Who, who got copied? I remind our staff all the time that they should go through the world assuming that there is always a camera trained on them. No matter where you go, unless you're in the intimate, known, confines environment of your own home, and you know there are no cameras hidden anywhere, you should assume there's a camera watching you everywhere you go. And the reason you should assume that is because there are cameras everywhere you go watching you. That's why I behave myself in the hallways of the church. There's cameras everywhere. <laughs> Likewise, you should assume that every email you send, every text, every tweet, every Instagram, every Facebook post is going to be seen and read by literally every single human being on the planet. Just assume it because it's all available to them. Same goes with what you say in a phone conversation on your smartphone. Well, I'm having a private conversation on my smartphone. There is no such thing as a private conversation on your smartphone. Every word you say, you understand it's recorded and stored. You understand that, don't you? There's no such thing as a private conversation. It does not exist in our world today. Virtual mistakes have cost more than one job, one marriage, or friendship, cyberbullying, online affairs, identity theft. Those aren't virtual. Those are real. There's not one of the Ten Commandments you can't break with a common iPad. Welcome to our world. So I bring up this discussion of real and virtual because we've been taught in school that one is more important than the other. But the Bible says both are important. There's the real physical world and then there's the real spiritual world. Uh, Both the physical and spiritual 
are equally important. Jesus was forever telling his listeners about the connection between the two. So Christ links water, refreshing water, with living water. He goes to this woman at the well, and she's drawing water, and Jesus says, you know, uh, give me a drink of that water. I need my physical body refreshed, and he gets water from her. And then he says to her, I can give you living water if you'll drink the living water I give you, you'll never thirst again. She goes, come on, man. You're going to give me water so I don't have to come back to this well every day and draw water? Jesus said, you don't understand. I'm talking about spiritual water. So there's physical water and there's a spiritual reality. He calls himself the bread of life. And so you can feed your physical body and nourish it with food, but there's also spiritual food that is equally important. That will satisfy your eternal soul. So there's the seen part of our world, and there's the unseen. There's the physical part of our world, this three-dimensional world we live in, bodies that we live in, and there's also a spiritual dimension that is unseen to our natural eyes, but just as real, and where all of us will spend eternity. So Lord, teach us to number our days. Let us get perspective on these things so that we'll have a heart of wisdom, so that we'll invest our lives not only in the physical needs we have, but the spiritual dimension that leads to eternal life. Help us be prepared. Second point, very quickly, and that is rest or the Sabbath can become spiritual food. And I want to appeal to you now to consider practicing the Sabbath more intentionally and that a key component of that practice will include the development of your spiritual life. Now, we're heirs to the pilgrims. Uh, the Puritans came, came over from Europe. They were religious folks, and they had a certain set of values and ethics that they practiced, and among them was a strong work ethic. You know, they wanted to have freedom of religion. They, they, they valued thrift and hard work, and that has basically been passed down to all of us generationally here in the United States. Only in the last 15 minutes of our history have we seen a, a shift start to occur in our culture away from the values of individual freedom and individual responsibility and being ambitious and industrious and diligent and, and engaging in hard work. We are beginning to see emerging now from a philosophical level and manifesting now in, in more tangible political ways the whole concept of communal living and that we're all, we're, we're all in this together and everyone should have an equal share of everything, which is in political terms, philosophical terms, a communistic or socialistic philosophy. You've heard me say this before, and I'm, I, I don't dabble in politics, uh, and so I won't be on this point very long, but just to make the point that, that people who think socialism is a good idea do not understand history do not realize that it's never worked anywhere it's ever been applied. And, and, and to, to hypothesize that the only reason it hasn't worked is because it hasn't been applied correctly is, is denial and, and um, foolish. And so, so the conclusion that I draw from folks who think that, that, um, that these philosophies and practices of socialism should be employed uh, there are only two kinds of people in the world who think socialism is a good idea. Only two. There are not three, there are two. One are people who like power and control over other people. So in, in a political arena, it is people who want political power. 
they think socialism is a great idea. Don't worry, I'm smarter than you and I will take care of you. So vote for me. The other person, types of persons that think socialism is a good idea are people who are lazy. People who lack ambition, lack a sense of personal responsibility and, and think that uh, they should be handed something that they don't have only because they want it. You have it and they want it. That's actually one of the other Ten Commandments. It's called coveting your neighbor's stuff. It's under the do not list. A week ago, I was working out. I was pedaling my bike, a uh, stationary bike, and I was listening to David Ram- Dave Ramsey on the, on the radio, which I do when I get a chance. And a 19-year-old young man called into Dave Ramsey. He said, I'm 19 years old. I'm really smart. I have a full-ride scholarship to college. I'm in college right now, and all of my... All of my tuition is covered by the scholarship. And I'm a residence director in a residence hall, and so all my room and board is paid for. So I have no expenses. I'm going through college, getting a very nice degree with no expenses. But he said, I need a new car. And so what I was thinking was that I would take out a student loan and buy a new car because I've heard that Joe Biden is going to forgive all of the student loans And so as long as he's president and willing to forgive all the student loans, that's the way it's trending. That way I can get a new car on a student loan. I won't have to pay for it. And then the young man with a straight face said, what do you think of that? I was yelling at the radio. (laughs) Who, Who thinks of that? What kind of person does that even cross their mind? To think that's a good idea, that that's a good plan. I mean, who raised that kid? I mean, if I could have reached across and grabbed him, I would have. Come with me. You need to live with me for about three weeks. You'll be cured of stupid. Dave Ramsey was much better. He was much better. He took about five minutes and and really gently... Uh, told the kid he didn't have any integrity and need to shape up. Who, who would even think that thought, let alone say it out loud, and then to say it in front of 15 million people listening to the radio? What is happening? So we're watching the deconstruction of a number of the values that have made this country great, and it's a very painful process to watch it happening. But let me just say that while there is still this strong work ethic, and we still have these pithy little statements, these aphorisms that we use in our vernacular now, a stitch in time saves nine, you've heard that, or a penny saved is a penny earned, or we say idle hands are the devil's workshop or the devil's playground. We still use those phrases because it undergirds our values of hard work and thrift and industriousness, and diligence, and ambition. These are godly characteristics. And, and, and so there's, there's still that that exists across the generations in our culture. And by the way, young people that I know who, I, who we employ here at Union Chapel, these are industrious people. These are, these are young people who are willing to work and willing to invest their lives. So I'm, please don't hear me broadly talking about any generation in a negative way. I'm just saying that that the scales are tipping, and it's, it's hard to see. So all of, that, 
All of that to, rem to remind ourselves that, that, we, that we, need to, we, we need to also counterbalance that tendency for a, a strong work, work ethic and industriousness with the, with the rest needed to keep our balance and to keep our health. And that's what the Sabbath is all about. In Exodus 16 and Numbers 11, here is this beautiful story of man in the wilderness. You may remember the story. The Jews are extricated from Egyptian bondage, 400 years of slavery, and they're, they're in the Sinai Peninsula. It's a desert. There's sand there. There's no water. There's no food. You've got two or three million Jews out in the middle of this desert. It's a desert. So what are you going to eat? What are you going to drink? How are you going to subsist? You can't grow anything. It's sand. There's no rain. It's a desert. So what are you going to do? Well, the people of God wandered in that wilderness for 40 years. How did they subsist? God made manna rain from heaven. Manna from heaven. Now, follow the rules that God, up, God set up for, for manna. Every morning, the newly freed sleeves went out to gather manna off the ground. If they picked up too little, it didn't matter because each family always had just enough to feed that family that day. And God explicitly instructed them not to store manna overnight. Now, some families, they got the word, listen, only collect manna one day at a time for your needs today. Don't collect two days worth of manna. And folks would just, just ignore that. They'd collect two days worth of manna off the ground in the morning, and then they would, they would put it in the refrigerator, and the next day they'd open the refrigerator, and it smelled like a dead carp and had maggots in it. So manna only lasted one day. The carp was, I just made that up, the maggots, that's in the text. There's worms. And, and, and so there was an exception, though, to the overnight rule. God instructed the Hebrews to pick up a double portion of manna the day before the Sabbath. Now, did you follow that? And in this way, they would have enough for two days. They were told to bake manna for Sabbath the day before because no one was supposed to work on the Sabbath, their day of rest. So on the Sabbath morning, even when manna collected the day before was left out on the counter overnight, it still had that fresh from the oven smell and taste. They never, they never, they never found manna. They never found manna on the ground the morning of the Sabbath. Not for 40 years. Did you get the message? Jesus wandered in the wilderness being tempted by the devil for 40 days. Note the connection, the, the symbolism there. The Jews were in the wilderness of Sinai for 40 years. Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days fasting and praying. And at the end of 40 days, Jesus comes to him. The devil comes to Jesus and says, turn these stones into bread. You're a hungry boy. You need to eat. Turn these stones into bread. And Jesus said, no, no. People do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So what, is, what do we learn here? We learn that Sabbath reassures us of God's love and care in all of the areas of life, that God sees our need and God will meet our need, that you may have been slaves in Egypt and, and yet you were delivered by the Lord. You were hungry and the Lord cared enough to feed you himself. He cared enough to provide water for you to drink. You were disciplined along the way, but that's only because you were loved 
and God esteemed you and cared for you. So you're created in the Lord's image and you need spiritual bread that can only come from the Lord. So obey the boundaries that God puts in place and make sure you stay connected to and inspired by the presence of Almighty God. What, what if on practicing the Sabbath, we actually find ourselves touching the hem of his garment and experiencing the virtue of Almighty God flowing into our lives? Wouldn't that be a great thing? It's exactly the way God has designed it. So we can rest, we can be refreshed, and we can experience reverence in God's presence. It's really good preaching. It's really good. I know a good sermon when I hear one. Listen, there's one thing worse than listening to a bad sermon, and that's preaching one. It's excruciating. You should try it sometime. It's horrible. Might cure you. So this is helpful information. If you've been sleeping, then go back and listen to it again and catch these important points. Really matter. Well, we've ended each of these sermons in the series with some reflection, and I want to do that again today, just to offer some thoughts as you're thinking and praying. Now, I've had some feedback about this reflection time because people have admitted to me that when I ask them to bow their head and close their eyes for a couple of minutes, they go away. I said, I'm sorry, Pastor, I fell asleep. That's great. If, if, a, if a nap is what you need right now, then take a nap. And by the way, people sleeping while I'm talking, I'm used to that. So it's not a, it's not a problem. The only thing you want to avoid is falling off into, onto the floor. That's a little awkward for you. But otherwise, the music will start up in a couple of minutes, and you'll wake right back up. You'll be good to go. So it's safe enough with that explanation. Would you bow your heads with me and just think about these things? Here's the truth. Americans currently live more than twice as long as our country's founding mothers and fathers. Did you know that? We have 20 to 30 times more income. We have so much food that we are in far more danger of eating ourselves to death than of going hungry. Many of our homes are enormous. We are as a whole better educated than people at any other time in history. So you tell me, you tell me, do we need more physical provision or spiritual provision? What do you reckon? Let me remind you that uh, Jesus did more in three years than most of us get done in a lifetime, but he knew how to stop, and he put it on display. He would, he would steal away to spend time doing nothing but being with God. He did this often, sometimes spending entire evenings alone with God in prayer. And we know just from studying his life, that he kept the Sabbath every week of his life. We need to think about that. Sabbath encourages us to be thankful. It allows us to see miracles all around us. It can increase our sense of wonder, connect us with God's presence. Could it be that God wants our cups to run over, our spiritual batteries to be charged, to remind us that God is the source of our life. Think about it this way. Both poverty and wealth can threaten our faith and relationship with the Lord. For example, Sabbath then equalizes that. It's a balancing point. Because on the Sabbath, the poor man is wealthy and the rich are to become humble. 
So we need Sabbath for the perspective it gives us. You have more than you think if you think you have too little. And you have less than you think if you believe you have it all. Sabbath will give us the right perspective. Could it be that honoring a Sabbath every week makes us more committed and serious about our relationship with the Lord? Could it be that this is even more crucial today when things travel as fast as the speed of light? God has actually designed us to spend one day a week at the speed of stop. So Lord, teach us to number our days so that we might gain a heart of wisdom. And everybody said, amen. All right, elbow the guy next to you. We're going to stand up now. Ready? Here we go.